to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus, chapter 18. Exodus, chapter 18. <clears throat> I'm going to have to apologize to you a little bit this morning for my voice. I was um, quite taken to task several times during seminary by my professors for attending sporting events and doing injury to my voice. And uh, they were very direct in saying that that is your ministry and it is the one tool that you cannot abuse. And I have not learned that lesson now as I approach a half a century. You think by now I would have gotten that right. But I still get too excited and yell when I should just go whistle or something or wave. <laughs> just doesn't have the same effect though. So... Um, I will try to get through today all right. Exodus chapter 18, we'll be reading the entirety of this chapter. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and offered sacrifices to offer other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw that all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and His laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. 
Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter that they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. For it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Well, we want to continue our study from the last two weeks in chapter, the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And we are going to um, investigate an area that um, sometimes might bring forth more questions than answers in some of the respects. Um, but we're going to not just uh, gloss it over, but we are going to put it in perspective, some of the information that Paul gives us in this passage that is not really developed extensively, um, but it does give us a perspective on what does God expect out of us. Now, we learned two weeks ago um, about the moral expectations of God on His people. We talked last week about the double standard that we carry. That there is a different standard for us in God's mind and in the uh, approach of the church than for the world. We expect better. Better than the law. It is not sufficient for a Christian to just be legal. It is a requirement that we be right. And there is a, sometimes a great difference between those. Sometimes being right might make you in certain circumstances illegal. This week, the uh, radio was uh, describing a certain... Well, man, it wasn't the radio itself. It was someone on the radio. was describing the circumstances in China where they are actively hunting down and closing up any group describing themselves as a house church. That they have accelerated this by outlawing the term. And so these churches that have been functioning and actually uh, describing themselves as a house church now uh, must be confronted with the fact, do we do what is right or do we do what is legal? And so our standard sometimes will demand of us even to violate what men say we ought to be doing as the apostles did. But I want you to recognize that when you suffer for doing what is right, which is illegal, you should also with equal joy and fervency endure the judgment of men. That is, we do not 
castigate our leaders for imposing judgment upon us. We do what the disciples did. We leave that setting joyful that we are counted worthy of suffering for His name's sake. That we are going to obey God rather than man. But obeying God rather than man does not put us in a lower moral position nor, as we're going to study today, in a lower ethical position, but in a higher one. And that is why, even in those settings where there has been civil disobedience in the name of Christ because they had to obey God rather than man, even in those settings, society itself and those in leadership recognized the rightness of that activity and it influenced them to such a degree that many of those very individuals came to know Christ as their Savior because they saw the rightness of what was going on, whether it was whether there was a legality to it or not. And so we have found, and even in this setting here in Corinth, where Paul is essentially cast out of the synagogue, and yet we see that after he leaves, the ruler of the synagogue comes to Christ. And we look at that and say, how can that be? Because he understood the rightness of the message and the consistency of it being lived out in Paul's life and ministry, and his response was to follow after Christ rather than to keep the laws of the synagogue as his um, focus. So we come to this passage today that's our third visit to it. And we haven't been going through it verse by verse as we normally do, because of the theme that is carried over from one chapter into another. We have been touching on it on each of the verses involved. This morning we want to look into specifically this idea of where there is mature faith, there is wise judgment. Not by one, but by many. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for the opportunity to look into it, to consider it. And Lord, that we pray that we might grasp its truth in the context in which it was given, not only of this chapter or this book, but of all of Your revelation. Lord, that we might also be willing to apply it in the context in which we live knowing that we are not dissimilar from those days, that it is not inappropriate or inapplicable to our circumstances, but it is very relevant. And Lord, we thank You for that power of Your Word of truth that never goes out of fashion, that never becomes irrelevant, that it is always to be applied Lord, give us the courage and boldness to confront Your truth today, to humble ourselves to it, and to conform our living as You guide us. In Christ Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we see in the specific aspect of this double standard that we talked about last week, the matter of judgments. Uh, What happens when things aren't, when there aren't, when there are individuals in the church that are not living this higher standard that God calls us to, what happens 
when issues arise within the church, and by the church I'm not talking about just the local church, Desert Hills Baptist Church, but the larger body of Christ, the capital C universal church. What happens when there is disagreement, when there is injury, when there is uh, conflict within the church? What ought to be done in that setting and in terms of the uh, resolution of those conflicts. And we have some examples of that in the book of Acts where we, those were there even under the apostles' oversight. And we think that somehow those should never occur, but the fact is we are flesh and we have not reached a perfection that we expect when we are in Christ's presence. And so they will mount up, sometimes legitimately, sometimes illegitimately. That is, sometimes there may be a legitimate complaint of something that is being overlooked, something that is being missed, something that isn't uh, coming out and coming forward that needs to be addressed. And such was the case with the distribution of the uh, assistance to the widows in the book of Acts, where there was... uh, not enough time in the day for the apostles to deal with that uh, and along with their other ministry responsibilities. They did not look at the people and say, why are you complaining and quit sinning like that? They simply recognized that their dispute, their claim was valid and needed to be addressed. And then they wisely addressed it by saying, select out from among you seven men full of faith and of wisdom that we can put this matter into their hands and they can serve at these tables while we focus ourselves on prayer and the ministry of the Word. And that is where we develop the uh, role or the office. We see that as the uh, root of the role of deacon within the church, that they will see to these matters, that they will release the pastors to this responsibility by taking and shouldering this other responsibility, but to think that that is just a business setting, it is not. It is a matter of faith, it is a matter of wisdom, it is a matter of godliness. These men were preachers, Uh, they were out there witnessing, one of their names was Stephen, the first martyr that we recognize there in the book of Acts. And so we're going to look at this strategy of God This is when the church is confronted with a compromise of its standard. Not a compromise of the world's standard, because we shouldn't even be down there. We should not even be at that layer of error and of of behavior. It shouldn't be there. Um, But we sometimes get there. Unfortunately, it happens. But if we would be proactive in addressing the standard that we hold in our church, that is of God's standard, if we are proactive in administrating that effectively, I'm convinced that there will be little cause for infrequent need to address these standards of even doing things on an illegal level uh, within the church. If we'll simply raise the bar and administrate the bar amongst ourselves. We'll administrate the standard that God has. And so Paul comes to the Corinthians He says, listen, um, I understand that you are taking each other to court. What are you thinking? Now, does that mean that we have a free pass to inflict any kind of injury on each other, a financial or physical or material injury 
or uh, libel or uh, anything like that upon our, each other? Does this give us the liberty to do that? No. But it recognizes there's an accountability. Now, we have a problem. And I'm going to share that problem here this morning um, with the modern church. And this is around the world. And the problem here in this church uh, and in each church that pastors have throughout this land, and, and like I said, this is a global issue really, uh, is that um, you don't recognize the church's authority in this area. We make lip service to it, but the fact is that church after church does not recognize the church's authority to administrate the standard of God upon its people. I say, Pastor, how can you say that? Because as soon as I start to implement it, here is the general response. I'll go to another church. What you've just made evident is that you do not recognize the authority of others in this body of saints to administrate a standard of God in your life. I'm out of here. You have no right to approach me on this. I will simply go somewhere else. And it has happened repeatedly in my ministry, and I am not alone in that experience. And in fact, it is so frequent that in pastoral circles, and I mean from early on, I mean in seminary and even in Bible college, uh, we learned very quickly about, you know, this is called church hopping. And we might say, well, church hopping is because you're not meeting my needs. But the reality is that most church hopping is avoiding accountability to the standards of God in the church. And to avoid that accountability, I will simply walk away. And I want to take you back again to Matthew and make you remember in Matthew 18 where we talk about the, the church discipline that what we bind here gets bound where? In heaven, that God himself says that if you identify this individual as walking in sin and you want to exercise church discipline on that person, it is bound. That authority is not just invested in the church, but beyond the church in heaven itself, where God says, I'm going to hold you accountable. And I want to share with you, by the way, if any of you are here trying to run from that accountability from somewhere else, um, you run to the wrong place. Okay, um, God says that, that that's going to be bound upon you and you can run to another congregation who will maybe tell you for a little while what your ears want to hear where you will not be held accountable because no one knows you or you will not be a member and therefore you think that you are above reproach uh, and that no one can confront you on these things. And I want to share with you, you're a fool. Because the fact is, is that when a body of saints has identified something in your life, that you cannot run from it any more than you can run from God. You are a fool of the kind of the ilk of Jonah that thinks that somehow you can get out on another ship and go in another direction and God can't find you. And I want to tell you, you are a fool to think that. So I want to just lay this groundwork that what we're going to talk about today, I understand that most of you don't really believe in. Because you're sure that if you were under this kind of of judgment, I'm going to use that word judge because it's used in this text extensively, that you would not have to submit to that finding, to that conclusion, that you would then 
take it outside the church or you would leave the church. You would not submit yourself to a finding of judicial finding within the church family. You would not surrender yourself to it if it didn't go your way. And say, Pastor, that's pretty harsh. It's harsh because it's real. It's real because I've experienced it over and over again. That's not the answer I want. I'm out of here. I'm gone. You didn't find things the way I think things should have found, which always lays towards our benefit. You ever notice that? It always lays towards our innocence. It always lays towards us. Never against us. And so, if you want to really say we believe in this, then the evidence of that is when you submit to it. Whether you agree or not isn't relevant. I've never found anyone that walks out of a courtroom that agreed 100% with what happened inside there. The victims are always sure that the perpetrator got off too easy. The perpetrator is always sure that he got treated too harshly. And when that happens outside in the halls of the courtroom, I go, there's a good judge. That's exactly what should happen. But are we willing to receive that kind of fairness, that kind of justice within the church? Or we say, these are the individuals that we recognize within the church that God calls upon to communicate His truth to us that are seeking themselves to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are seeking to live that out daily in their lives that we identify as having faith in the wisdom of God. And then we ignore their instruction. We, we go counter to what they say. And when they try to draw us in, we simply say, you have no right. What you are just exerting is your own rights and you are not recognizing the authority of God in your life exercised through men of God that He has placed around your life. And yet you say you are a child of God walking in humble obedience to Him. I say you're not. Rather, you're living your life according to your own edicts, according to your own principles, and by your own authority. And so were the Corinthians. This is the sign of immaturity. I want to challenge you that the church, and I've seen it in a lot of countries, the church is immature today. Not this church. Let me change that. Not just this church, but the church is immature in this respect. And that we do not recognize this kind of authority. We will make lip service to divine authority in our lives, but we will not exercise that by responding to human authority that God has established in our life within the church. Yes, Caesar has a sword, and he can use that. What sword does a church carry? Oh, a much greater one. I'm not going to fine you. You know, I'm not going to come to your house and say, okay, um, for the next three months you're going to have to give double tithe because of what you did. Not going to fine you. Not going to imprison you. We're going to bind you up in heaven. And I don't think we grasp what that means and entails. We don't do it lightly. We don't do it sarcastically. We, we don't do it just because I can. We do it, oh, carefully and mournfully that it would get to that degree. But when we do exercise that kind of authority, 
Um, God says, I recognize it. I want you to think about that. God recognizes the authority of the local church. And that means when you run away from that authority, you're running away from God's authority in your life. And then we wonder why I'm so miserable and why I so easily go into sin is because fundamentally you never really submit yourself to the authority of God because you never submit yourself to the authority of God's leadership in your life. And that's true in the home as well as in the church, as well as in the universal church. So, what is the foundation of this idea of making these determinations within our church? First of all, we looked last week that we have a different standard, a high standard. A standard that identifies things like covetousness and idolatry as sin, as well as immorality and drunkenness and extortion, things that even the world says is sin and is criminal. Um, we look at Christ's description of heart sin and we want to address it. We don't wait for it to be perpetrated in behavior. It can be evidenced well before that. For the words that come out of our mouth reveal what is in our heart, do they not? I'm pretty sure James says that. So I don't have to wait till you act it out. I can hear it. And once we hear it in your conversation and speech, <laughs> we can address it. You see, hate is evident. It can be by your look, by your attitude, and by your speech. Before it ever comes out in any kind of hateful act, it can be recognized. And we can address it right then. You see, the legal system can't do that. Because they have a lower standard. But our standard is unique. Genuinely unique. It stands alone. And we can address those things. And so we don't have to wait till it turns into libel or slander. Libel isn't writing slander is out of the mouth. We don't have to wait for that. We don't have to wait for that. We can go well before that and say, where are you going? Um, that's gossip and we're not, that's a sin. We're going to address that right now. What's going on in your heart? You might say, Pastor, that's your, you mean you can just come into our life and do that? Um, not me. God has that right. Through whatever instruments He uses, we're going to look at how many instruments are available for His use. So we begin looking at this standard. Now, we have also this wisdom that God declares that we have. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. It says, do you not know? Here's something else. You better add to your information base. And if you know this, you will recognize the authority of God through the church in your life. Here, do you know this? That the saints will judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And now we have one more thing you don't, you need to log into your information base. Verse three. Do you know this? That we shall judge angels? So he asked two questions. Don't you know that first of all, we will be judger, judges of the world and we'll be judges of angels? And I said, when is that? 
Well, we're not going to get spend a lot of time on that, but let me just share with you, it is obvious, it should be obvious to us that when that's going to occur is at the end when it says that we will rule and reign with Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that we will be the participants actively engaged in the judgments of God on both the world and angels. We will be of that caliber. We will be in there. So when you think about what will be our job when we are ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus, what does that mean? It will mean that amongst other things that you will be participating as judges over these. And I think we see a little glimmer of that um, in Revelation chapter 6 where we find the martyrs underneath the throne of God saying, How long, O Lord, until you judge these people? They were in the judge chamber and they were serving there as the prosecutors if you will Um, but they themselves declared these are the ones who have slain us and still deny your name how long do you pour out your wrath on them and then later on when we get into the beginning of the uh, later judgments and the wrath of god i want you we notice in chapter seven that one of the things that gets god going in terms of his judgment is the prayers of the saints that we are involved in this process. So if we have that knowledge, listen, in our future, we are going to be exercising this kind of judicial authority over the entire world and over the angelic beings. That's the kind of judicial authority that saints carry. Wow. Yes, we'll be judges of the judges of this earth. We will be that of that number. That is our future job description. And the things that we're going to be judging the world over there are going to be of God's standard when we are going to be involved then. We don't involve ourselves now in judging the world. That's going to come one day. Today, our judgments are over one another and they are about things of this world that are of not very great significance, really. Well, so-and-so sold me a horse and told me it was two years old and it was really 12 years old. Okay? By the way, that's right out of Fiddler on the Roof, if you're wondering where my perspective is. Okay? And we're going to fight over it as a community. Um, well, we're going to make a judgment call, and that may not fall for you or against you or somewhere in the middle. Um, but let me share with you, it's just about a horse. It's not very important. And I don't care if it's a horse or a pickup truck or a whatever, whatever mode of transportation or whatever possession that you're concerned about. Um, we can settle those matters, can't we? If we can put in perspective those matters in comparison and contrast to the matters that we are going to be judging in eternity. So not... Only does God recognize the authority of the church. He has invested in that authority true exercise. We have the wisdom and the capacity to put these things into perspective. And yes, that may involve occasionally taking a loss. In fact, that is exactly what Paul proposes here. It would be better for you to let Christians cheat you than to expose their cheating ways to the world. What? That's not fair. 
What do you mean it's not fair? What you mean is it's not fair to you. What you don't mean is whether or not it's fair to Christ. What you don't care is, is it fair to the church and its testimony? But Paul stipulates that it is better off for you to take injury and say nothing than to expose that to the world. The fact is that if the church was rightly viewed by herself, because you are the church, it could be cared for within this setting easily. And no lawyers would ever have to be hired. Or brought into the equation at all. We read earlier today from Exodus chapter 18, Jethro speaking to his son-in-law and he makes an excellent declaration. And that is wisdom and good judgment. Wisdom of God is not held captive to one person. And this is what Paul is trying to bring out here. Let's, let's look down here um, in verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? Here you are claiming to be the body of Christ, claiming to have the Spirit of God indwelling you to have the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth. And there's not one person amongst us that we can subordinate ourselves to and say they have enough wisdom to settle this matter. But rather you would go to those outside the church that the church does not esteem. And... Uh, some people might get real upset that we say that, but no, we don't. I don't esteem the judges of this world. I don't set them on a pedestal. Okay? Uh, I don't put them up there because, frankly, um, their office is largely tainted and we recognize that they um, are dealing with a law that is suspect and that they are dealing with personal issues that are suspect in their own Life and not just because of the historical evidence that is there, but the fact that we know what goes on in the hearts of men. They are desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that. So we don't esteem them. We don't put them up and say they have the capacity to know how to judge things in our church. They have zero capacity to be able to know how to do that. Zero. And I don't care what area of law you want to get into. I don't care if you want to talk about family law, real estate law, corporate law, personal injury law. I don't care what area of law you want to talk about. They are not the esteemed people in this church. We do not look to them and say they are of quality of character that they could come in and judge things in our church. They are not. There are some young people who are not even adults in our church that I would esteem to have better judgment of what is right and wrong than those men. 
And so who do we identify to be these judges within the church to, to settle matters, to bring resolution and peace? Who are they? What is the expectation? Well, let's go to Exodus chapter 18. And we'll start there a little bit. And I want you to look at the qualifications. Um, Jethro has some wisdom there. And by the way, God did affirm Jethro's advice. Um, later on, the 70 elders of Israel are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and actually going to be prophesying and doing some exciting things um, and actually have to sit down and have dinner with God. That's kind of incredible, huh? There's a church social for you. Um, and so at the base of that mountain, they have all of that. But uh, look at the description here in Exodus chapter 18 of who uh, Moses is encouraged to go find out. Well, let's first of all look at Moses. Why was he doing what he was doing? Verse 15, because the people come to me to inquire of God. You see, it's not about what is in my interest. It's what does God want? You see, when you ask the question, what is right? It's not what is right for you. It is what does God say is right? So when we are asking the question, what is right and what is wrong, not just legally, but ethically, and that's really what we're dealing with today is ethics, because we're way above legalities, should be at this point. Ethically, what is right and what is wrong? We are inquiring something of God. There's a divine question. God, what is right? What is wrong? It is not a question for philosophers, and it is, it is not a question for the for the college professors in teaching ethics. It is a question of God. What is right? What is wrong? And Moses recognized this. When they come to me to settle a dispute, they really want to go to God, and I'm his man. I'm God's man here. And so they have a difficulty. They come to me. I judge between one another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. You go, well, this is great. This guy meets God face to face in that tent out there. They haven't built the tabernacle yet. And, um, I mean, this is a guy that's shiny, okay? I mean, he's shiny. That's how close he is to seeing God's glory. He's a shiny dude. And people listen to him, and he has a, it's obvious he carries that authority. He's shiny. And they want to know what God says. And so I have to admire the people of Israel. They didn't duke it out. They, they didn't run over and say, we got to go find some Egyptians to settle this. Right and wrong belongs to God. And we're going to go to God's man and find these out. And Moses had a great perspective on this. But he didn't understand the breadth of the work of God. And Jethro was going to open his eyes to it. It's not that what you're doing isn't right or is wrong. What you're doing isn't good. What you're doing is right, but it's not the best. It, there's, there's something better out there. And I want to explain to you the better. And it says, uh, you're going to wear yourselves out. It's too much for one person. It's too much for these people staying in line all day. Um, boy, I sure couldn't do that. I, uh, um, me and lines just do not get along. And I'm trying. But now he has this advice, verse 19 of chapter 18. Stand before God for the people. You may bring the difficulties to God. You're doing great with that. You stand before God. 
You bring these things to God. You're going to declare statutes to the people. You are the mediator. That's great. You are the mediator between God and the people. But that doesn't mean you have to do every single difficulty. It says teach the people. A true mediator, a true man of God is not going to keep all the power to himself of judicial rule in the church. He is going to extend it. And, and this advice by Jethro is an advice to every pastor who keeps the judicial power in his hands to recognize that we are all priests before God here in the church. You're all supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're all supposed to have the wisdom of God and the illumination of His Word available to you. And it is dependent upon not your intellect, but the degree to which you are submitted to that Holy Spirit in you. That you can go to God and say, what is right, what is wrong. But when that is frustrated for you, God has others. And so my job, which goes right along with what Ephesians says is the job of pastors, elders in the church, my job is to teach you God's Word. Teach the people the statutes and the laws. Show them the way in which they must walk. So first you teach. Then you lead by example. Show them. And then number three, what else is Moses to do? You're going to instruct them in the work they must do. Alright, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you. But guess what? This kind of living isn't just for pastors. This is work you should be doing too in your life. These are the steps you should be striving after. These are the principles you should be longing for. This is the kind of speech you should be seeking to emulate in your life. This is the, the heart that you should have. This is your work too. It's not mine. Righteousness in the church does not depend upon the pastor. It is all of our responsibility to maintain the character of the church. It is your job to make sure righteousness happens here and out there among these people around you. It is work you must do. But even amongst all these people who are the people of God, verse 21 comes along and says, you shall select from your, all the people, here we go, able men. Well, what makes you able? Such as fear God, men of truth, who hate covetousness. Oh, that's real important. And place such over them to be rulers. Very simple list, but by, wow, it's uh, simple does not mean easy. Men of truth who fear God and hate covetousness. Why are those things important? Number one, they need to fear God. They need to recognize that whatever I decide in this matter... I have to answer to God for how I did this. I have to answer to God for how I did this. That's the chain of accountability. Once you have individuals who don't recognize that chain of accountability, they will do what the saying does that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. They will think they carry absolute power because I have been placed over you, Moses appointed me, and so you're going to do what I say. But men who fear God recognize humbly, I'm going to be held accountable by God for this. He's my re judicial review committee. Is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's my judicial review committee. 
that I have to answer to for how I perform this function. So fear God. Recognize you have an accountability to the holy, holy, holy God in whom is no darkness at all. Secondly, they need to be men of the truth. Not just who know the truth, but who live it. They have to be men of the truth. They love the truth. And they hate when someone comes up to them and lies. And they will respond in judgment accordingly. How dare you hide that from me? How dare you lie about that? They have to hate that which is not truth. And that means they're going to have to, they're going to be willing to work overtime to make sure that they find out the truth and not just make a snap judgment upon what they hear without validating what is spoken. This is the whole context of the judicial system of scripture is that we're going to go out there and just because you say so doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it true. So we're going to find other witnesses. We're going to bring forth evidence. And this is the whole evidence of that our world tries to emulate, but very poorly. And we're going to try to bring this out. And you think that that didn't happen in the early church. You haven't read the book of Acts. There was a couple who thought they could lie and get away with it. You know what they lied about? How much they gave. Boy, if people started dropping dead for that in churches today, we would just our churches would just start disappearing. We'd have to have mass funerals. On the basis of everyone who claims to be tithing, uh, our churches should have enough to feed the world. That couple lied in church about their giving. And they dropped dead for it. That was a warning for us. He said, that's pretty extreme. Can you do that, Pastor? Maybe. I haven't tried. Do you want to find out? Or can we learn? They need men of truth who speak truth themselves, who love the truth, who desire after the truth, not only truth from men and truth of what's going on, but truth of God. They, they, wanna, they, they seek it out. This qualifies you in God's judicial system. We ought to be men of the truth. Which means that I'm not going to condemn someone just because it, what they sa- say sounds strange to my ears. I'm going to dig into God's Word and say, is this truth? And then if I can't find it in God's Word, I'll condemn it as for what it is. It's a, the imagination of man because it's not the truth of God because it's not here. But if it is truth, and it's contrary to the way I've been thinking or living, that I'm going to humble myself to it. That's what it means to be a man of truth. I'm going to conform myself to it. And that means some drastic changes on my part that I'm going to do it. Thirdly, they hate covetousness. Oh, God hates. Hates. Boughten judges hates them. And by the way, if he hates the paid-off judge, I think that goes all the way down the system, whether it's the paid-off cop, the paid-off prosecutor, the paid-off inspector, 
the pay, and that happens all the time in the state. Trust me, the paid-off governor to the paid-off president. God hates him. And by the way, he really, really despises the paid-off pastor. We pay you well. Teach us what we want to hear. You teach what we tell you to teach or you're going to lose your job. Well, my job isn't... Your salary... By the way, you can't take away my job. (laughs) Because God gave me this job. But you can take away the salary and the position here. Um, You can have it. I would rather have the truth. You see, this third criteria is really important that they hate covetousness. It's not that they're immune to it. It's that they hate it like God hates it. Because if they love money, they can be bought They got to hate it. They hate it in themselves. They hate it when they see it out there. They, they do not like it. They hate covetousness. And it's no mistake that we get to Corinthians and we find in this list of things that God says is going on in the church that needs to be brought under judgment, covetousness, which is idolatry, by the way. The love of money over the love of God. I would rather get rich than do right. These kinds of men place an authority over the people. I see it borne out in the description in Ephesians, in the description in Acts, in the description of Timothy, First Timothy. Um, what kind of men do we put into those roles? Who are the wise that should be judging amongst us And I I see great wisdom in us recognizing, first of all, that if there's just one, that's not very good. The Corinthians, there wasn't even one. Really? There's not just, there's not even one guy among you that's mature enough in the Lord to hate covetousness, to fear God, and to love the truth. There's not one guy like that in your whole midst that you can trust these matters to? And shame on us if that's the case. That you think you have the right to go out to the legal system of the world? This is called utter failure. So we are called upon not just the pastor, but I believe in that role like Moses My responsibility is to teach you the truth, to model it for you, and to get you to work the truth. To equip you to do the work of the ministry, is the Ephesians version of that, which we could have gone to. To equip you to do that work. Whose work is it? To For the judicial enforcement of this standard of Christ in the church. It is each one of you who claim Possession of the Holy Spirit. It is your job. I cannot get over how many times I have been brought into a circumstance to ask 
to moderate it, to judge it. And people have been under my ministry for years and years and hiding. And worse than that, others have helped them hide their sin by their silence. When there's sin and silence in the church, we are of the most immature sort. We are of the most selfish sort. Because we are hiding others' sin because we don't have to want to do the work of righteousness. We are no different than the people who will walk by a person being beaten to death and do nothing. Friday night, the track meet. I was sitting with some of the athletes minding our own business and behind us something erupted. I don't know what, but some kid thought he had the right to just go ballistic. And I got up, turned around, and intervened. And uh, it was none of my business, but it was my business because I was the closest adult male. And these boys needed an adult male that was mature to put things in perspective very quickly. It wasn't long before a official was there and some other adult males, but I was the first. And break this up and send them on their way, it was trivial. It was extremely trivial. But um, beta males um, always overexplode to the trivial when they don't have alpha males in their life. That's why dads are important. And so he walked off, storming and swallowing the curse words he wasn't willing to swallow earlier. And I didn't stop watching him. And he came back. He doubled back. Imagine that. And I got up again and stood there between him and the track and stared at him until everyone felt uncomfortable. I didn't, but they did. And they were, we're okay. And I was like, no, you're back here for a reason. And he finally broke down and apologized. And he said, that guy pushed me. I was like, well, that was his problem. Your reaction is your problem. And so you do have a problem. I sat down with our, some of our young men. I'm like, wow. You see, it is our responsibility to respond. I didn't have to do much that day. I just had to stand up and be a man in front of boys. I didn't threaten. I hardly said anything. And in the church, we need to stand up and be godly. That I'm not going to tolerate it. Sin doesn't belong here. And we can turn a blind eye and we can just ignore it. We can help them hide it by not 
saying anything. But that's just selfish. The easiest thing for me to say, that's somebody else's problem. Where is that team's coach? It's his problem. He's responsible. Where's, a, where's an official? They're responsible. I'm just here as a spectator. I don't have responsibility towards that. And unfortunately, that's most in the church have that attitude. I'm just here as a spectator. I don't have any responsibility in that area. And you cannot be more wrong. The only ones here who are spectators are those who are outside of Christ. You have work to do. And that work is more than just sharing Christ with the world. That is certainly there, very very powerfully there. And it lays on your shoulders. But we have work to do in the church. And that work begins. It doesn't end. It begins. Maturity begins when we start to recognize God's authority in my life and that I have to surrender myself to the truth and that I cannot be going after these false gods of this world. I have to let it ride on me and I have to do the work of righteousness in my family. Right here. This family. And that means I have to recognize that when God has wisdom in our midst that we respond to it. I don't declare it's not fair, it's not the way I want it to be, so I'm not going to ignore it. You do it to your own peril. Don't claim God's on your side. When you ignore the truth, even a judgment call within the church. As I said some weeks ago, since when? Since when is the opinion of godly men not worth listening to? And so we are called upon to have the Work and the testimony of Christ outweigh anything in our life. That righteousness is our greatest endeavor. Godliness is what we long for day after day. Not just as individuals, but as a community. As a people of God, we have this responsibility one to another. And when we shirk it, it is, as verse 5 says, to our shame. It's to our shame if we shirk it. So I want to challenge us to give more than just lip service to this idea of church, local church authority. We want to give more than lip service to God's call for pastors, elders, bishops to rule the church. We want to give more than just lip service to our fear of God. We want to give more than lip service to godliness and humility.